0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be back in the book of Joshua, looking back at our favorite group of people, those lovable Israelites, and they are out of the desert. They are entering the promised land. They cross the Jordan. Well, actually, technically not yet at the point we're about to read because we're running back a little bit. Then we'll move forward. But we are going to be uh, talking about the Israelites going into Jericho. So we're going to talk a little bit about the spies' mission where they encounter Rahab. And then uh, if we have time, we'll get to the actual fall of Jericho. I kind of got a little bogged down in the Rahab story and bogged down in a good way because I just think there's a lot of things for us to learn from Rahab's story. Some are going to involve some dead languages, so get excited or stop listening if that's enough to scare you away. But that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to start in Joshua 2 today, and we'll be talking about the first part, the spies who are going to go in and scout out Jericho, and we're going to talk about some of those things that we learn from Rahab's story. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, going through verse 3, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So Joshua uh, sends these two men, these two spies, he sends them secretly. They're going with the goal of not being caught and they are caught almost immediately from the time that they arrive, So apparently wandering in the desert doesn't help your espionage skills very much because um, the king knows about their presence almost right from the beginning that we see. So they find themselves in Rahab's house and the story tells us that she's a prostitute. In verse 15, we see that her house is built right into the wall. So it's basically right on the outer perimeter of Jericho, which of course explains how they found themselves in that house. Um, of course we also know there's a little bit more than coincidence here as we're going to see Rahab's story unfold, but that's where they find themselves. So they go in trying to out the land, kind of probably checking for some weaknesses, things like that. Uh, remember at this point, Joshua hasn't been given the battle plan for, for uh, Jericho. So he is going as if, you know, it's going to be a pretty normal, maybe military encounter, except for obviously it's a big city and they have not had a lot of experience with that. So, but he's thinking like a military man. He's thinking, I got to find like weaknesses and things like that. Um, spies really aren't going to help him a lot with that. But that's okay, because God helps him. He's better than spies. So moving then down to verse four, we see what happens with these spies when the people of Jericho come to check in on this report that they got, that there were Israel, uh, Israelite spies in their midst. Verse four. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True. hides these spies that are coming to scout out her city to destroy it and she lies to her own people about where the spies are she says yeah okay maybe you know maybe it was kind of uh, irrefutable that they had come in maybe she was aware that uh, they had seen the spies come in so she didn't want to say they weren't there at all because then they would probably totally foil the plan but so she admits that they came to her house uh but then she said they left the city and she basically sends the king and his, uh, his search party on this wild chase acting basically like they're right on their heels. So it says that they came in like right before the gates closed and then they're leaving right um, before or right the gates closed right after them. So she's basically like, if you hurry, you'll catch them kind of deal. So she sends her own people on an, uh, a wild chase that they will find no success in and she hides these two foreigners Who, again, she probably has at least an inkling that they're here to scout out her city to destroy it. And we're going to find out more about how much she knows. So the question that we naturally ask ourselves then is, what is Rahab doing? And why is she doing that? So continuing in verse eight, it says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land So Rahab basically uh, gives her, these spies, the intel on her people about the people of Jericho. Um, They've been hearing about the things that God has done for Israel and the people of Jericho are terrified. Even though they're behind uh, a walled city, um, they are recognizing that this God that comes with Israel uh, is not going to be impeded by that. She says, we, I know that the Lord has given you the land. So maybe not everybody knows that. Maybe they're all afraid, but she feels pretty confident that no matter what protections they have in Jericho or what hope they're putting in their walls, that the land is going to fall and it's going to fall to the people of Israel because God is with them. And so in the following verses, um, after she kind of gives this information, Rahab's going to ask for mercy from the spies in the name of the Lord for her and her family. Uh, and the reason that she is, feels this need to ask for mercy is because she's heard of the deeds of the Lord and recognizes that he is God. So this is an instance for us. This is a nice little case study for us to recognize how gracious it is for God to display his glory, how God shows not only his glory, but also his goodness when he is made known, when he makes a display to people about who he is. So God glorifying himself can be a topic that uh, is a little difficult uh, and makes, maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, scripture teaches us uh, many are taught by various cultures also the value of humility. So scripture would, um, con- would tell us to not consider ourselves more highly than we ought, but in love to serve one another. The greatest among us must be a servant. Um, the kings of the gentiles uh, use authority to lord over one another let it not be so with you those are the kind of things that we teach in scripture or we are taught in scripture and then of course it's not just uh, christianity that values humility as well there are other cultures um, that showing that that image of god that there's a value on humility and so Hidden acts of pride sometimes are okay. Let's be real. Culturally, I'm I'm saying hidden acts of pride are usually kind of okay. We kind of deal with that. But obvious attempts to bring glory to oneself, like most people look at that and kind of sneer. Like even if we do it ourselves, we're that's kind of like a spec log situation. We see that log in someone, or we see that spec in their eye, but we don't see the log in our eye. Uh, pretty much everybody would agree. An obvious attempt for a person to bring glory to their self is we don't like that. Right. And that's I think that's fairly common to the human experience um, in most places. And of course, a value of scripture. However, God is not shy to make his intentions to glorify himself. known. we see many scriptures in which he says this. Here's a couple of them. Uh, One from Exodus uh, chapter nine. Uh, This is when God is told Moses to talk to Pharaoh. This is kind of in the middle of the plagues uh, story. Um, and this is what he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So that's Moses speaking on behalf of God there. And then in, in Isaiah... 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, so God makes it clear in scripture that he wants his glory to be known. So God is not um, pretending, he is not uh, being vague. He's very direct that uh, many of the things that he's doing are so that his glory can be known. And that he's also acknowledging like in this Isaiah 42, Um, My glory is my own. I don't give it to any other. No one else deserves my glory. So when we talk about God like that, sometimes it can make us a little squirmy, right? It can make us a little uncomfortable. And that comes from our recognition that for us or for any other human being, something like that would be like, not just frowned upon, but kind of like, okay, this is getting a little bit out of hand, right? If somebody was to talk like this, like the way that God is talking to Pharaoh or the way he's uh, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, makes us very, we would be very upset to hear somebody talk that way, right? But God talks that way and he doesn't hide it. But as I mentioned, and really as we see exemplified in this story, God is good and God is gracious in this. For him to actively, purposefully, Openly display his glory is good and it's gracious. The glory that God receives in Jericho from his deeds that we're seeing here for his people. Oh, I'm sorry. The glory God received in Jericho, like in the city from what had happened before. So the the fact that the people of Jericho had heard about what God had done. So this glory being made known to the people of Jericho led Rahab to have faith in him. So God's open display of his glory, his purposeful display of his glory, ultimately re- led the people of Jericho, specifically Rahab here, to know who God was. And it led Rahab to have faith in him because there's no other way to describe what Rahab's exemplifying here, right? She's, she's showing faith in God because she's making a deal with God's people when they send two spies who are the worst spies in the history of the ancient Near East who get caught immediately She's making a deal with them uh, to save her, even though she's in the midst of a powerful walled city surrounded by, you know, you'd soldiers and things of that nature. So there's no other way to describe really what Rahab is showing here, what she is exhibiting, other than that she's exhibiting faith. And that's because of what she said is, we heard about what happened at the Red Sea. We heard about what happened with these two Amorite kings. And you know what? When I heard about that, that made me realize something. That made me realize that, as we'll see, she says, the Lord, your God is God. So God glorifying himself, something that in a vacuum can maybe make us feel a little bit uncomfortable when we first hear it. It led to someone from a distant land who had never encountered the people of Israel personally coming to believe in him before they even ever showed up. So that is why we would say it's gracious, it's good for God to glorify himself, right? Or and another way we can think of that, to make himself famous, to make who he is known on a grand scale. And the reason that it's good and gracious is because he's worth knowing. No one else is worth the glory that he ascribes to himself. No one else can show the glory that he has because no one has it. So when a human is hopefully reluctant to glorify themselves, it's it should be a recognition that, I eventually come to the end of myself and eventually I'm not worth the attention or the knowledge or um, the praise that I receive. Eventually we fall short, right? But that's the reason that we can give glory to God, that he wants us to give glory to him, that he glorifies himself is because every time anything that you could ascribe to him that is true of him, he's 100% in. He never fails in any of it. We may ascribe false things to him, but he never fails in the things that he ascribes to himself. The things that are true of him are 100% true all the time, and he's not changing. So all these instances of God's care for the Israelites, the way that he uh, brought them through incredible difficulties that provided again and again, showed grace to them again and again, it gave pagan peoples an opportunity to see who he was and to respond in faith. Remember, Rahab said the whole city is basically in a stir over what we've heard. Now, we don't get any report of anyone else who chose then to respond in faith, to respond that the Lord your God is God, like Rahab will, but we know they knew, and they had that opportunity to see who God was, and Rahab took that opportunity to respond in faith, and that's going to end up being the salvation of her and her family, that they put their faith in God as they approached the city. So uh, speaking of what Rahab's confession was, Rahab's words themselves that she says, um, there's another thing that that kind of bears some examination for us, something that maybe should give us a reason to kind of raise our eyebrows. So here is verse uh, 11, again, the second half. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Okay, so when we hear that, Sounds pretty good, right? Sounds kind of like something we're used to. Honestly, the first time we read it, we kind of gloss over it. But remember, this is a person who is just encountering two Israelites for the first time, okay? And yet, these words are familiar. So today's going to be a fun experiment where I'm going to read some Hebrew to you. I hope I make Dr. Coover Cox proud. I'm going to read some Hebrew to you, and I want you to try to absorb it and see if it sounds like the next thing that I'm going to read so at the second half of verse 11 okay so that's what she says and the that's the part that's translated the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath so this is in Joshua this is what Rahab's saying. All right, it sounds familiar to us, right? We're kind of used to that kind of language, the English at least. Let's go down to Deuteronomy 17, or I'm sorry, 10, uh, 17. So this would have been, you know, something that was written and read before. Verse 17 in English, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Now, listen to the Hebrew again and see if it sounds familiar. Okay, so that is the Lord your God is God, again, in a totally separate spot. And again, it sounds familiar to us in English, because that's a fairly common, like, kind of formula for how the people of Israel would talk about God, okay? The, the Lord your God is God is pretty common. But again, now we're talking about Rahab saying something like this. So we read her words and we are kind of naturally inclined to just gloss over them because they sound so familiar. But that kind of formula, which is very common in the Old Testament, would not have been something that was familiar to her. So also think about this. They spoke different languages. So they were probably both similar enough, the languages that they spoke, that they were able to have some understanding. So, both of these languages, um, I'm not 100% sure what language the people of Jericho would have been speaking, but they would have both been of ancient Near East ancestry, okay? And uh, a group of languages we call the Semitic languages. So um, you could think of it uh, more modern day, like the Romance languages, having um, that, that common tie uh, to Latin. Uh, this is kind of a similar thing, um, that they have this, language group uh, in common. But again, it's not the same. Uh, And then also taking the complicating factor that Israel came from this land that they're in, because sometimes we forget, Jacob like was living in Canaan before he moved his family to Egypt because of the famine when Joseph was there, right? He was living in the land of Canaan. But then they left for 400 years and they maybe had some Egyptian language influence into their Hebrew or, you know, at the very least they were separated for 400 years. So their language would have, you would think sharply diverged from that of um, the people of Jericho, but at the same time, probably some familiarity. I mentioned all that to say that they probably were able to understand Rahab to an extent. And she was probably to understand them to ex- able to understand them to an extent, but it's not like they were both speaking the exact same language. And yet here she is, Saying this very formulaic Old Testament uh, phrase to describe God, so this kind of leads us to this concept of that we see in the Scripture. It's ipsissima verba versus ipsissima vox. Okay, so those are Latin words. Ipsissima verba means the very words, and we are using very uh, like exact the exact words, and then ipsissima vox meaning the very voice or the exact voice, okay? So it's kind of a term used in some biblical scholarship. And usually this discussion has to do with the words of Jesus, as scholars try to decide what were the ipsissima verba, the actual words, the very words of Jesus, and what was ipsissima vox, the very voice of Jesus. And it's a pretty difficult exercise usually, and a lot of times it's unfruitful. Sometimes people are trying to say that Jesus' words weren't inspired, like they're not um, authoritative. They're not part of how we would consider uh, scripture. Some people, either way, they're fine. And they say, yeah, it's inspired. It's words of scripture, We're just curious. And that's why it's often un- unfruitful, because sometimes it's really not making much of a difference. But it's helpful for us to consider, though, when we see kind of strange languages, strange language that's out of place, um, because there are people who... Are biblical scholars who do not believe at all that the Bible is God's word, which uh, boggles me that they'd want to study something that they don't believe is true. But you know, in reality, some people are trying to undermine the authenticity or the authority or the inspiration of Scripture. So whenever we see things like this, there are people that would say Rahab could never have said that because she didn't know those kind of words. Therefore, it's a lie, and therefore, if it's a lie, then the Bible's a lie. People would take that path. So whenever we see things like that, it's important that we don't just say, oh, I guess the Bible's a lie. But we think, okay, what's going on here? So most likely, what we're looking at here is is probably not an abscissima verba. We're probably not looking at the very words, the exact words of Rahab, but instead the abscissima vox, the very voice of Rahab. So this is probably not a direct quote from Rahab at that time, is what I'm saying. I would say that's at least fairly likely. So there are some other options though of how this came to be written in the book of Joshua, who we generally ascribe Joshua as being the writer or author of that uh, inspired by God. Um, So one, it could have been interpreted um, from a quote into this familiar formula. So I can imagine a situation in which Rahab, as she's trying to communicate with these Israelites who have a slightly different language than her, that she's saying something like, well, we know that the God you serve is more powerful than any of the gods that we serve and any god anywhere doesn't matter sky sun earth wind fire your god is better than our gods you know you can see her saying something like that and then the people who reported this saying she was basically communicating what she was trying to communicate is that the lord our god is god and that's how we say it but that's the intent of what she was communicating so i think that's one example that seems pretty realistic another one Rahab could have repeated this story uh, when they were writing it down um, at a later time after she'd been assimilated into the people of Israel. So remember, I mean, I guess not remember later on, she's going to get she's going to be saved during the Battle of Jericho and she's going to be assimilated into the people of Israel. And it you could see, you know, maybe she's telling this story 10, 20 years later. And by this point, she's kind of used to this formulaic, this linguistic tradition. And that's now how she describes what she was trying to say back then and didn't have the words for it. Now she has a new way of saying it. Or another option, it was this story was passed on through oral tradition that began to take on this familiar formula for the words of Rahab. Now, here's the important part. While these words may not be the actual thing she said just right then when she was talking to the spies, it doesn't change... The, that this was the intent or sentiment behind what she was saying the voice the Vox okay and so that's where the faithfulness and the inerrancy and the authenticity and the trustworthiness the inspiration of scripture is in in my opinion easily upheld to say that even if these weren't the exact words off of her lips it doesn't mean that there is any deception in this account okay and it does explain like oh that's kind of interesting that she was saying it like an Israelite would have said it right so that's kind of this uh, this concept that I hope didn't bore you to death. I'll tell you, I usually get the most feedback when I talk about something real weird and scholarly like this. So if you really don't like this, you're going to have to tell me because some people like it and they tell me. So that's just I guess we're just going by democratic rule here, um, though. I do want to say, too in response to this kind of, you know, quote unquote, scholarly argument, it's also entirely possible that the spirit of God gave her these exact words in a supernatural way that just like she learned of the supernatural deeds of God, that she was expressing this faith, that also God could have given her this formula that was traditional amongst his people. And just, it just was the overflow of her heart out of a faith in God. Let's not discount that either because yeah, scholars don't really like when we say it was a miracle, but at the same time, God does miracles. And it's okay if scholars don't like it. So uh, so the spies, like I said, they make this deal to keep her safe when they invade the city. Uh, she helps them escape back to their camp. They hide in some hills for a few days. Um, as you can see, I correctly predicted that we'd use most of our time on some Rahab stuff. So uh, if you were looking for me to talk a whole lot about how they're going to take Jericho. I am sorry to disappoint you, but we skip down to chapter six. And what we see is just very generally that um, God tells Joshua to have the people march around the city one time for the first six days. And basically to do it kind of like quietly, except for some horns and stuff. And then on the seventh day, they're going to march around it seven times. And in scripture, this is a usually a number that is this number of completion of perfection, number seven, um say seventh day march around seven times and then at the end they all give a shout and they blow the trumpets and down go the walls and they go in uh the spies are sent to go to rahab's house and save her and her family and then everything else is supposed to be uh destroyed or dedicated to the lord so basically nobody's supposed to take any spoils for themselves remember that for future weeks nobody was supposed to take anything for themselves people always take something for themselves but they weren't supposed to um and so that's what happens at jericho uh, if you've ever seen veggie tales um there's no slushy machine that uh, falls on the israelites while they're walking around we don't get any reports that they were laughing at them from the walls or throwing slushies at them um, not to say that the laughing part didn't happen i'm pretty sure the slushy part didn't happen but at the same time it's a really good veggie tales so Um, If you need more info on the fall of Jericho, VeggieTales can help you out on that. But as we then seek to apply, there are some things that I think are important from Rahab's story that we apply. So first is God deserves the glory that he receives. God is the only one who is worthy of the glory that, of any glory that we could ascribe to him. No one else measures up, even, even one iota to The glory that God should receive. So, when we think about God glorifying himself or our intention to give God glory, it's important for us to remember that we are doing something good and we are doing something gracious because God is doing something good and gracious. We're partnering with Him and doing something good and gracious, which is making His name known to others. So, and by others, I mean sometimes ourselves sometimes we need to be reminded. We need to glorify God in our own hearts so we're reminded of who he is and who we are in comparison to give him praise and to remind ourselves that we are in need of a savior. Second, we can uh, encourage the body by giving glory to God, by sharing things in which we've seen God glorified. We encourage the body. We remind others that God deserves glory and praise and that we are in need of a savior. And then for those who don't believe in God, it's gracious, it's good for us to make him known, to give him glory, to give him praise so that they too can recognize who God is, who they are, that they are also in need of a savior. Second thing I think we learn is that we just see God's graciousness. Knowing that we are not worthy of any of this glory, knowing that we, li- we are sinners apart from the work of uh, Jesus in our lives, we are Uh, stuck in our sin, we recognize from the story the graciousness of God too, because there's this person, Rahab, who was living a life that was not honoring to God in a city that was not honoring God and didn't know God. But upon hearing about God, she expressed her faith in God and recognizing that he is who he said he was. He is who he showed himself to be for the Israelites. We see God's graciousness in that He, she was invited in she was became a part of God's people and as many of you probably know, ends up also in the lineage of Jesus, this uh, pagan prostitute who placed a f- amount of faith in a God she'd only heard about in the lineage of Jesus. If that doesn't tell us something about God's grace, then honestly our eyes are closed, our hearts are closed. And that leads right into the third God uses broken people. Rahab was broken. Her family was broken. We are broken and no one's more broken than the other. But God is using broken people. He's in the habit of using broken people. He's not in the habit of using awesome people. He's not in the habit of using the best, quote unquote, because none of us are the best and none of us are better. We're all broken people. So we can sometimes look down on ourselves and think I'm not worthy to be used by the Lord, but no one has ever been worthy to be used by the Lord, but That's one way that he shows us who he is. He shows his glory by how he uses even us broken, wounded vessels to do good in the world. So if he can use Rahab, he can use you. He can use me. He can use all of us. And ultimately, he'll be the one that receives the glory.